So I told you last week um, that I get a little excited. I'm kinda, I, I get a little geeked up about launching in a new series like we're beginning. And we began last week and we're kind of following up this week. I, I get excited about it for a lot of reasons. Um, the first is really that I feel like I'm just a lover of God's word. Like I just get excited when I get to talk about Jesus. Like it just sort of, something stirs in me and I get excited about it. But I also love the way that God sort of blows us away with uh, truth that we never knew, really knew was there. But we can take a book like Ruth or Jonah or Philippians or whatever that we're walking through, and we can look at that and say, <clears throat> man, I've read that book a dozen times, or, or I've heard those verses a few times, and then the Holy Spirit sort of shows up and enlightens our heart right where we are in the middle of our life, and, and it just sort of opens up new truth. And I love it when, when people come and they say, man, here, Trev, you know what God showed me this week when you were teaching was this, and it, it wasn't anything that I said. Or it wasn't a point that I made, and I, I just love that, because it means that God is moving in each one of us, and he uses his word to sort of penetrate our hearts at those moments um, right where we are. And God meets each one of us right in the middle of that. And Ruth is a, it's a really powerful story. It's buried in the middle of, or kind of to the front end of the Old Testament, and it's one that we kind of throw away at times, because there's not a lot of, like, big kind of historical facts there. There's not well-named people or great stories of like huge patriarchs or kings or things like that. It's just a story of a foreign woman and her mother-in-law. And, and so we sort of look at it and go, oh, that's kind of nice. It's a little enchanting or whatever, but we really don't know what to do with it. And, but I find the story of Ruth to be <clears throat> one of just sort of this incredible power. It is a love story. It's a story about family love. It's a story about romantic love, as we'll see. But really it's about kind of a story about God's deep love for humanity, his sort of redemptive and restoration story that he has for you and that he has for me. And, and I find that it's an incredible, powerful journey through gospel truth. And I told you last week, and by way of kind of catching everybody up to speed that may not have been here, I won't do this every week, but I'll, I'll catch up to speed with some of the history that I shared last week. And, and I told you there were two things that I really want you to understand about the book of Ruth before we really get started. The first one is this historical context that it was literally the worst of times. Ruth 1.1 says that the story takes place during the period of the Judges. And the Judges was a historically dark time in Israel's life. In fact, the book of Judges ends, chapter 25, verse 21 ends, when the people, and says basically the people did what they saw fit was in their own, and kind of in their own eyes. What they did, what they thought was right, and they lived according to their own way. Now the period of Judges took place after God had given the Israelites the promised land. Joshua and Caleb and those guys had conquered the land. God had given it to them. And God had established himself as king. He was supposed to be the king of the nation. But the Israelites lived this sort of rebellious life where they would rebel against God. God would either raise up enemies or famines to come against them. The people would cry out for help and God would come to rescue them. And this period of 400 years just sort of unfolded like that. And from the outside looking in, it looks as if God's sort of plan was somewhat failing. I mean, it was a corrupt group of people, and they were choosing their own way. And there was very few kind of powerful things of truth that happened during that 400-year period. Finally, the Israelites cried out. They said, we don't want God to be our king anymore. We don't want any part of that. We want to be like every other nation, so give us a human king. And God pleaded with them and says, but I am your king. And they said, we don't want you we want a human king. And so God gave the Israelites what they desired, and they had the first king, Saul. And so the monarchy reign kind of began, Saul and David and so on and so forth. But the original design was that the Israelites would fill the promised land, and God would rule over them, and they would be different than all the nations because they would have God as their king. But they chose themselves. They chose to do what was right in their eyes instead of God's eyes. And so it was this cycle of people rebellion, rebelling, God correcting, people crying out, and God coming to the rescue. 
So this time period is, is really the worst of times in the period of Israel. And, and sort of the theme that we're going to see in this book is that even in the middle of the worst of times, God is always at work. God is always at work, even at the worst of times, for his glory and sowing seeds or laying stones of a foundation for greater happiness in our life when we pursue him. That's sort of a theme that we're going to see throughout this book. So I want you to understand that, that God is at work in a time where it seemed as though God would be absent. He's providentially working behind the scenes, orchestrating this sort of narrative movement that is the book of Ruth. So I told you that was the first thing I want you to see. The second thing was that this book is really dripping with gospel relevancy, gospel truth. A lot of times we look at the Old Testament and we say, I don't really know what to do with it. I mean, there's no Jesus in there necessarily, and so it's sort of antiquated. It's got a bunch of old rules and old laws, and, and I know the Psalms are kind of, kind of nice, but other than that, I really don't know what to do with it. And so sometimes we think that it's kind of void of anything that I really need to uh, sort of apply to my life, or that it's just sort of some old collection of historical whatever, and it's probably good, but I don't really know what to do with it. The reality is, is that the Old Testament and the New Testament is a complete picture of God's redemptive plan for humanity. We cannot understand the New Testament, the life of Christ, the resurrection and death of Christ outside from understanding the Old Testament. It is God's complete movement for redemption. And so the Old Testament gives life to the New Testament. In fact, you can find in the Old Testament God moving towards the Messiah, which will be Jesus to come. And this book, Ruth, is a direct connection between the gospel and the life of Jesus itself, himself. And, and we have to see that. And so we're going to be picking up themes of redemption and gospel truth throughout this book. But I told you the best way to do that was we look at the gospels themselves and see how Ruth is directly connected to them. So I, I kind of opened up Matthew chapter 1 and I showed you the first 17 verses, the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew opens up by saying, this is Jesus the Messiah and this is how he came to be. And he shows the lineage that traces all the way back, kind of his Line. It was important because the prophets had kind of laid out where the Messiah would come from, and so Jesus' lineage was really important. But in Matthew's genealogy, I told you, it was a really odd collection of people. It wasn't just like a perfect lineage back. He uses intentional names and intentional times. But in that kind of lineage, he uses four women in this sort of kind of genealogy of Jesus. And they're not the women you would think of, the, the Leahs and the Rebeccas and the Rachels and these kind of powerful matriarchs in the Old Testament. But they're they're kind of names that would shock us, really, if we were to really look into them and understand what uh, these women did. And he used women by the name of, like, Tamar. And Tamar was, um, well, she's this, this woman in the Old Testament whose story kind of goes back to the fact that she acted like a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she could carry on her family's line. Kind of a shady character, right? But carrying on the family line, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. We have um, Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho that hid the spies when they first came in to look at the promised land, right? She was a non-Jewish prostitute. Yet she's included in the lineage of Jesus. And when the city of Jericho fell, she was the only one that they spared. Then you've got Bathsheba, who notoriously uh, is kind of the, the woman that had the affair with King David, right? He was, saw her bathing, sitting on his roof, and he saw her bathing, and he went and got her, and, and, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant, and then he didn't know what to do, and so he had her husband come back, and he was a noble guy, and so then he had him killed, and it was this awful movement in David's life. Um, and yet Bathsheba is considered and, and, and put into the lineage of Jesus. And then we've got Ruth. Right? The Moabitess, the foreigner, the little kind of unknown woman um, that is now attached to the Messiah. These are all in the bloodline of Jesus. So why is that important? <clears throat> well, I told you last week it's important because you're starting to see the power of the story and the power of the gospel. That the gospel story is messy. And Jesus takes the broken and he redeems them 
for something beautiful. So what we see in the book of Ruth is this sort of God is at work in the worst of times. And it's dripping with gospel relevancy that says God will redeem even what the world throws away. And that's kind of going to be our, our walk through this book is that God is working even when God seems absent. And that God takes those things that are broken and destroyed and he redeems them for something amazing. Which is really the picture of what Jesus has done for us. That our lives are a complete disaster and that we are, at any point in time, we'll just choose ourselves over the ways of God. But God is deeply at work in us, redeeming our lives for his glory. So I told you the way that we look at this book is a little bit different. The way we're going to look at it, instead of necessarily just kind of marching through it chronologically, we're going to look at its movements. And so we're going to read each chapter and spend three weeks on each chapter. We started chapter one last week, and we're going to spend three weeks on it. And then we're going to move to chapter two and three and four until we get through it, because it doesn't necessarily flow just verse by verse by verse, because it's a story, it's a narrative, and you have to understand sort of the beginning movement and the end movement. And so we read a chapter at a time, and then we're just going to kind of see what the Lord pulls out of there for us. So we're going to be in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, this morning, like we were last week and like we will be next week. And we're going to focus our time, though, on verses 6 through 18 as we see God really challenge these women to say, am am I enough for you? All right, that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip to Ruth, chapter 1. We'll read the whole chapter together, and then uh, I'll kind of walk you through some stuff, and we'll just sort of go from there. So if you've got your Bible, open it up. Let's take a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into it together. God, I know that's a mouthful, um, even things that I repeated from last week, just to get us to the place where we understand what's happening. I think reading scripture, reading your word in context is so important. Um, Father, it adds such depth to really understanding what's going on in this uh, story. God, I pray that what we find this morning is that we might find ourselves in this story, in this narrative. Uh, God, that we might get lost in it somewhere, that somewhere along this journey of these two women that have walked through tragedy upon tragedy and are dealing with hurt and struggle and real questions and real fears, that, God, we might find ourselves in there. We might find our lives echoed in their questions, echoed in their tears, echoed in their frustrations, their anger, their fears. But, God, somewhere in there we might discover what you're doing in us and trust that even in those times where life feels like it is, it is kind of up against us. God, we would trust that you are at work. So Lord, I pray that when we get to the end of this today, what we might be able to stand on is this idea of saying, God, you are enough for me. Look, you're enough. It's all worth it because you are enough. Take a moment in your heart, in your life, just pray that God would teach you something this morning, maybe something you weren't ready for, maybe something that you didn't think. Just pray that God would teach you something this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you or behind you. Even if you don't know their name, I do this every week. I just want you to be in the habit of praying for other people. This is a community. Pray for the people in your community. Pray that God would move in them, teach them. Just pray for somebody. And Lord, we pray that you would move um, in us you would open your word to our hearts. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take that lightly. We also know that only you can reveal truth. We won't open these pages and discover anything on our own. God, you are the revealer of truth. And so we pray that you would fill our hearts um, with your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked this person if I could share this quick story, and uh, they said, of course. And so I I was, um, this is a couple weeks ago, someone stopped me and said, after church, and said, 
you know, every week you do the sort of the same thing. You know, you, you ask us to pray that God will do something in our life, and then you ask us to pray for the, the people around us. And uh, at first, I, it kind of just annoyed me. And I said, oh, I'm, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> so it kind of annoyed me. I mean, you know, it was the same thing. And, you know, I, I don't know. I just didn't rub remember the right way. But a couple of weeks ago, what I realized was that it was the first time I'd ever in my life prayed for my husband. Ever. And he's sitting next to me in church, and you asked me to, and I prayed for him. And what it's challenged me to do is to be a person that prays for my husband. And I thought to myself, I just love the way that God moves. Like, it's not an intentional to kind of keep us in a habit, but to be in the habit of praying for other people. If this is the only moment in our life that we're praying for the people in our community, the people next to you, the people in your life, we're missing something. So take those moments and ask God to move in people's lives in really powerful ways. So those are all intentional things to say, God, you are the revealer of truth. We're not going to open your word and all of a sudden discover these things and be like, oh, great. No, it's because the Holy Spirit enlightens our hearts. So we want to give him everything. Turn it all over to the Lord and just say, teach me. The book of Ruth is one of those that takes a little bit of Holy Spirit teaching because at first glance, you look at this thing and you go, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's a great story. But when you really start kind of pulling its, its words out and looking at what they mean and looking at what God is doing, it really does become a life changer. So I'm going to read all of chapter 1. I want you to hear it in its context. And then we're going to pay special attention to uh, 6 through 18. And we're going to look at how these women kind of begin this journey to return uh, back to, well, Naomi's homeland. This is Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard that Moab, the land, when she heard in Moab the, uh, that the land that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there, and with her two daughters-in-law she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you, uh, and you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and then gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. My daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely, if anything, but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So here's what we learned last week. It takes place in the period of the judges. And God was oftentimes using famine as correction in the life of his people. And a famine hit the promised land. The promised land was out of food. And funny enough, the town of Bethlehem was named House of the Bread because it was the place that God would always provide right? Jesus even calls himself the bread of life, whereas Jesus from Bethlehem, God does really cool things with names in the Bible, right? But Bethlehem, the house of bread, the area, the land of Judah, the area south down there was a famine. There was no food. And so we've got this guy from Bethlehem, Elimelech, right, whose name really means my God and my king, at a time where God was supposed to be king, but people were living kind of for their own ways, decides that they can't live there anymore. That God is sort of left them, and so he had to take it on himself to kind of leave God's promise, go across to the land of Moabite, to the land of the Moabites, and take his family with him. Now, the Moabites sort of were in constant tension with the uh, Israelites, because the the Moabites came from a kind of the descendant of Lot, and his kind of incest with his daughter, and and all kinds of wickedness there, and they worshipped a god named Chemosh, and and they they were just sort of a kind of a constant conflict with the Israelites, not always at like militarily kind of conflict, but always at spiritual conflict. But, you know, Elimelech takes his family over there, and he takes his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and Malon's name means sickness or weakling, and, and Kilion's name means death and dying, and they, we talked about how bad they were at naming kids and all that kind of deal. But they leave the land of bread, all right? My God, my king, takes his whole family over there, and they leave. And, and pretty much soon, tragedy strikes. We know that Elimelech dies. And the two sons are now married to Moabite women. They find uh, uh, two women, Orpha and Ruth, and they get married. Although it wasn't forbidden to marry Moabite women, it was frowned upon because the worship lives didn't match up. The Israelites worshiped the one true God, and the Moabites worshiped this false god named Shemosh. And they came from really poor choices in the back in the lineage of, of the kind of forefathers, if you will. And so they didn't get along. And even though it wasn't forbidden, it was really frowned upon. They weren't even allowed to gather and worship together, these two people groups. But they married non-Jewish women. I mean, you're living in Moab. There's probably not a lot of Jewish women around. So you do kind of what you've got to do, and they married non-Jewish women. And then something else happens, and these two guys get sick, and we don't really know anything about it except the fact that Malon and Kilion both die. And now Naomi, the ma- sort of the matriarch of the family, the mother, is left with these two non-Jewish daughters-in-law with no husband and no sons. And the reality of her plight is now setting in with her. And we spent our time last week talking about Naomi's misery and the fact that she was a widow and what that meant and that she was childless now and what that meant and that she was living in a foreign land and she had non-Jewish daughters-in-law and they were barren as far as we know or, or something was not having, God was not blessing them with children and what that sort of meant and all these things were happening. And then she hears in verse 6 that God has come to the aid of his people and now there's food and she's stuck in a foreign land completely hopeless, without anyone, and a sort of plight of a desperate widow. And we talked about misery. Misery. The story kind of continues. God comes to the aid of his people, and Naomi figures, well, I've got to go back now. Like, it's the only chance I have. I'm stuck over here in Moab. I've got nothing. I can't earn a living because I'm not allowed to work. I have no trade. I have no sons, no husband to take care of me. And in those days, sadly enough, it was a completely male-dominated society, and a widow had no hope if someone didn't look after her. In fact, there are all kinds of provisions in the Bible that we're going to see that you had to take care of the widow because they couldn't take care of themselves. So Naomi's out of options. So she says, 
I'm going to have to go back. I, I have to go back. So she gets her two daughters-in-law. They gear up, and they pack up their things, and they're going to walk the 50 or 60 miles from Moab back across the Dead Sea to hopefully return to where God is now blessing the land and find some kind of something there because she is completely desperate and hopeless here. So she kind of sets off on this journey with these two daughters-in-law, and it says as they're kind of walking, as they're kind of moving, she stops. And she says, you, you girls go back with your families of your mother. You've got to go back. And I don't know really what happened there, but somewhere along the way, Naomi had a change of heart. Like she had kind of talked them into going with her, or they said they were going with her, and they got all their stuff packed up, and they, they put all their things together, and they set on this journey to leave their homeland and follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. But as they started walking, it's almost as if she came to this place where she said, look, I can't do this to you. I thought I could, but I can't. Because here's the reality of my life. It's awful. My life is a desperate kind of life of despair. There is no hope for me. If I take you with me, if I take you two girls with me, who I love and I care for, your life is headed for the same desperation mine is. So I can't do it anymore. I thought I could, but I can't. I want you to go back to your mother's home. Because there, at least here, there's hope for you. Look, you can remarry. You can find another man. You can prolong your family. You can have children. But if you come with me, it's desolation and emptiness. You can't do it. It says that that the girls just began to weep out loud. Now, I think there's a lot of real emotion here. I mean, imagine what these women have gone through over the past few years, right? Naomi, of course, we know she's lost everything. She's left her homeland. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She watched her her sons marry these non-Jewish women, and, and, and they were unable to conceive. I mean, her life is desperate. But the two daughters-in-law have lost the men they love as well. They lost their husbands. They have probably cried, all three of them had cried on each other's shoulders so often that they're bound together now by this sort of deep sense of grief. I don't know if you've ever walked through grief with someone. I mean, real grief. Maybe you, you lost someone that you love or, or you, some kind of tragedy struck your life or your family or a group of friends. But, but in those moments of great tragedy, you find yourself bound together with those people. Like, look, the world can take everything else away, but for some reason, we are always connected because we walk through that most difficult time together, right? It happened in our family when my father passed away. I mean, my brother and I's lives were forged together. Even though we were brothers, the, at 22 and, or 21 and 23, when we were walking through these things together, no matter what happens at this point in time in our life, we will never have that sort of taken away, that summer that we spent trying to put our family's life back together, right? These women are forged together in these sort of moments of grief. And so it says they wept out loud, and I get the sense that they are just weeping. And they're real tears, because now Naomi's saying, not only have you lost your husbands, but I'm leaving your life as well, and you won't have me. And it's real, they're real tears of despair. But they say, no, 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 we can't do that. We're not going, we're going with you. And then Naomi kind of goes on this tirade, right? Where she says, why would you want to go with me, right? Go home. What do I have to offer you? Do I have more sons? I mean, look around you. Do I have any more children, any more sons that you could marry? There's no hope for me. And even if there was, if I found a husband and I had children, would you wait for them to grow old so that you could marry them? Are you crazy? Look, if you follow me, your life will end up empty right? What's more, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. So she's going, listen, not only is my life a disaster, but God is not blessing me. So if you follow me, you're walking down that same trail of desolation. Well, that's probably about all Orpha needed to hear, because she's like, okay, either I don't want that, or I respect you enough. And she kissed her, and she began to leave. But it says, 
but Naomi, or but Ruth clung to her. I love that picture, right? They wept again. Orpha kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. I don't know if you've ever had one of those, those that, that sort of moment where you just couldn't let go. No matter, nothing was going to, you were so determined that nothing was going to change this sort of plea that you're making. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, my, my grandmother was really ill, and uh, she had been sick for a little while, but they had moved her from the town she was living in to Houston. We were in Austin at the time, moved her to Houston. And I had overheard my parents sort of talking downstairs about this was really probably about it for my, my grandmother. This was sort of the last effort, and the chances of her making out of the hospital were slim. Well, I had never lost anyone in my life, and I loved my grandmother deeply. And I remember going downstairs and pleading with my dad. He was going to drive out from Austin to Houston and go see his, his mom, go see her in the hospital. And it was like a Sunday afternoon, and, and I had school on Monday. And, and he said, you can't, I said, you got, please let me go. And he said, you can't go with me, you have school on Monday. And he went out in the driveway. And I remember literally just hanging on to his waist, sobbing, my hands buried in his shirt, and I'm saying, please, please let me go, and I want to see her. And I, you know, I was just, I was pleading with him, and and he sort of, you know, kind of put me back on the step. And my mom was there trying to comfort me, and I was wailing uncontrollably. My dad got in the car and he began to back out, and I was just absolutely. I started kind of running out in the driveway, and finally he just sort of gave in. He said, okay. So we got in the car, we drove to Houston, and we spent the next two days sitting by the side of my grandmother. And sure enough, she didn't make it much longer than that. But I'll never forget those moments sitting by our bedside, having convinced my dad that, look, I was going to run after the car, if that's what it meant. I get the sense that Ruth is sort of in that place where she is gripping so tightly to Naomi. Naomi's all she has. She lost her husband. She's going to go back to her family. Is that really what this is amounted to for her? That she just says, no, look, I, I, I'm going with you. And she's pleading with her. And then she says this. She makes this sort of statement. Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will be buried there. Will the Lord deal with me severely if I break this, basically? And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined, there's nothing she could do. She said, okay. She just said, okay. She stopped urging her, and the two women kind of went on their journey. In this little book um, of four chapters, our author spends about 13 verses kind of telling this story of the return of Naomi to Bethlehem. It's a a huge amount of time in a short little book to to, to kind of be devoted to that. And I started thinking about that, why this is such an integral part to the story. Why not just say Naomi wanted to return, the daughters went with her, that she said no, but Ruth stayed with her. I mean... What, was, what is he trying to do? And I think there's a few things that I want you to see this morning that our author is trying to do. The first thing he's trying to do is he's trying to really help you and understand Naomi's misery. Drive home this point. Now, we get how miserable Naomi is. We get it. But what our author's really doing is saying, look, her life is so broken and so desperate that if, if anything is going to happen for the good, it's going to be because God is going to do it and not Naomi. Naomi can't rectify her own life. There is no redemption that Naomi can do. Her life is broken and desperate and hopeless, and she's wandering back to the land that God has now come to the rescue of his people without knowing anything except the fact that she's got no future. That's it. If I'm going to die, I might as well die back there. And, And our author plays this up, and he plays up her misery and her anger and her bitterness because he's going to show us that God is a God of redemption. 
And so we can't miss that these whole first 18 verses are really devoted to Naomi's misery. All right? The second thing that he does is he introduces us to a very strange, very strange Israelite custom that's going to become very important. And, and Naomi alludes to it in there. She says, why would you want to come with me? Am I going to have more sons that then you can marry? Am I going to basically have the brothers of Malon and Kilion that then you can marry and carry on your family name with? She's alluding to a, a law in Deuteronomy that basically says that if a brother has a wife and that brother dies, his brother will marry the sort of widow. He will marry the widow or someone in their immediate family will marry the widow so that the family name can be carried on and the first child that that widow has will be named after the dead brother. Now I know it sounds confusing, but really what it means is this, is if you die, right, and you're a a man, your brother marries your wife and he carries on your name and they name that first child after you. Really weird. However, you got to put yourself back in these days. you got to move yourself some 3,000 years ago and start thinking like a Hebrew. These were, family lines were really important, all right? Names were really important. And so if you had a, a, a wife and you passed away, you would want your family to carry on your family name. You didn't want it to die with you. And so your brother or your nearest living relative would then marry your now widowed wife and they would carry on your family. Now, sounds weird and creepy, I get that, but... It's important, and it's going to play a huge role in our story, and so our author is introducing us to this. He doesn't want us to, to seem weird when it's going to come up in chapter 2. So Naomi's basically saying, look, I don't have anybody to redeem you. I don't have anyone to redeem you. I don't have any brothers of my sons. There's no other children. You are absolutely hopeless. The third thing that I think our author wants to do is he, he's going to begin to introduce us to Ruth's character. The book book shifts in those two verses and when Ruth makes her speech. It turns from Naomi's kind of misery to Ruth's character. And everything in the book begins to shift at this point in time. And and our author wants us to see the kind of person, the kind of character, the kind of faith that Ruth has. And her speech where she says, look, don't urge me to leave, right? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you die, I'll die. Your God will be my God. You know, where you get buried, I'll get buried. Like that whole speech the author's playing that up to show you that something is different with this person named Ruth. And the more I look at that speech, the more remarkable it is. I mean, basically Ruth is saying, look, I will leave my homeland, my people, my friends, my family, and I will follow you, right? I will basically commit my life to being a widow and childless. That's what it meant. When she followed Naomi all the way back to Judah, she was saying, I'm not going to remarry. You don't have anyone for me to remarry. And as long as I stay part of your family, I can't. So I won't have any children, and I will remain a widow, and I will remain by your side. So she's saying, I'll leave my homeland. I will kind of commit my life to being a widow and childless. I'll also meet your kind of ancestors and your culture and your customs and leave my own. I'll get introduced to new people or new things or new whatever, and I'll leave everything I know behind. And then basically she says, I'll do it forever. Because she says, where you're buried, I will be buried, meaning I'm not coming back. Ruth basically says, I'm walking away from all of it. But what's really remarkable in there, and we kind of just sort of downplayed a little bit, is when she says, and your God will be my God. See, something's happened in Ruth's life, and we don't know when it, when it was. Maybe it happened as she walked alongside her husband uh, kind of years earlier. But somewhere along the way, the God of Naomi, right, the God of Elimelech, the God of Malon and Kilion, became Ruth's God. She sort of forwent her kind of religious beliefs with this God of Chemosh, and she lined up with Jehovah. 
She's one of only about three people in the whole Old Testament that pledges allegiance to Jehovah who was a non-Jewish person. Something radical is taking place. And she says, your God will be my God. Now, what makes this really radical for me is that look at the example she's, being, she's living with. Naomi is her picture. And Naomi is so bitter and so angry and so mad at God. And she says, God not only hates me, but he's forgotten me and his entire hand is against me. And yet, Ruth says, that God, that, that'll be my God. You think Ruth would be like, I'm going to stay over here where I am because the wrath of that God is not anything I want a part of. And if this is what he's done to your life, why would I want a part of that? So, so Ruth basically says, somewhere along the way in her life, whether it happened just then or whether it happened several years earlier, she basically gave her life to Jehovah the God of the Israelites. And he has sort of changed things in her. Because now she's willing to walk down this bleak, black future with Naomi, right? Because of her love and loyalty for her and her love and loyalty for Jehovah. Now here's what I want you to see by by way of wrapping all this up. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. All right, I'm going to give you a bit of a disclaimer because it's really too easy to look at Naomi and blame her. So look at Naomi and say, okay, so here's the message for this week's, or, the, or the, the, the kind of point for this week's message. When life gets really hard, when things don't go your way, don't have the attitude of Naomi. Look, it's a hermeneutical cop-out to do that. Because here's the truth. Naomi's life was crappy. It just was. She lost her husband. She left her homeland. She had really no choice in any of those matters. She lost both of her children. She had no heirs. Her life was death. That's it. And it's really easy for us some 3,000 years later to be like, okay, when life is hard, don't be like Naomi. You want to know the truth? When life is hard, I'm just like her. My faith crumbles like a house of cards. And I'm like, God, where are you? You must hate me. Or God, why am I so empty? Or why are you so distant? I mean, the truth is, is that when life comes like that, we're just like her. So we don't get the luxury to stand over here and go, okay, just don't be like it. The truth is, is that we're all like her. It's too easy. So what I'm going to say and what I want you to hear this morning is not an indictment on Naomi, all right? But rather, it's, it's a lifting up Ruth. Because Ruth modeled the faith and life that Naomi didn't. Now think about that for a moment. Naomi's really telling kind of part of this whole story is when she says, no, listen, I want to tell you something. It is more bitter for me, right? It's more bitter for me than it is for you. Why would you come with me, right? My life is worse. You get this sense in Naomi that she is so lost in her hopelessness that she doesn't even see God's move around her, that God has now lifted the famine from Israel, that God is pushing Ruth to journey with her, that God, which she doesn't see yet, will eventually redeem her life. We're so lost in our hopelessness and despair. Naomi's so lost in it that she can't see God's move even around her. And sometimes when life is bad, we exaggerate our hopelessness. But Naomi's telling sentences, my life is worse than yours. She has almost zero sort of sympathy for her two daughters-in-law that just lost their husbands. You got to remember, these women lost things too. 
They watch the minute they love die. We don't know why, but they're no longer there, and they are without children. They are widows. They are walking down the same road. And yet Naomi says, no, it's worse for me. And I really think, is it really worse for Naomi? Let's ask ourselves that. Because Naomi, right, was she kind of without a future? So was Ruth. Did Naomi lose her husband? So did Ruth. Was Naomi's future absolutely bleak? So was Ruth, especially when Ruth attached herself to Naomi. Was Naomi without children? So was Ruth. And Ruth chose to be that way. See, the reality is that Naomi had almost zero zero control over her situation. But Ruth could do all those things. She could go and remarry. She could go and maybe have children. But she chose voluntarily not to so that she could show her loyalty to not only Naomi, but to God. It's almost as if Ruth is saying, listen, I've had this encounter with the God of Israel, this Jehovah God. I've experienced life in your family. There's no one going back for me. Like, I'm in. So she clings to Naomi, and Naomi's saying, my life is worse than yours, and Ruth is just basically saying, look, I'm going with you. I can't turn back now. I've given my heart and my life to Jehovah, my heart and my life to your family. I am with you. Even if that means total sacrifice for me. No children, no future, nothing. I am with you. Why? Because there's no turning back. I've seen it. It's not the promise of what's to come that's driving Ruth. She knows what's to come. It's nothing. So it's got to be something that's happened in her along the way. A very similar thing happens in the New Testament. Jesus in the book of John is given this really difficult teaching. I mean, it is hard to hear. And it says that a bunch of his followers, a a whole lot of them, heard this teaching and they got up and they said, this is too hard. And they left. They just sort of left. And it says that Jesus turned to the 12, the 12 disciples that were left. After all these followers had heard this teaching and they got up and left, he looks at them and he says, aren't you going to go too? And Peter, who seems to be the voice for the the group, always says, Peter looks up and he he basically says, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Basically, Peter's saying, I can't turn back now. I've seen you. I've heard your words. Even if it's hard teaching, even if it's sacrifice, even if it means death, I cannot go back because I have seen how good you are. You are the Holy One of God. I'm all in. Even if it's awful, I'm in. I can't go back. I wouldn't go back. It's basically what Ruth is saying. She's saying, listen, urge me all you want to. I'm not leaving. I'm clinging to you. Why? Because somewhere along the way, I met Jehovah, and I got introduced to your family, and life is different for me now. So, yeah, I could choose me. I could choose to save my family line. I could choose to run back and maybe find another husband, but I'm not. Because something transpired in me that's changed me. I look at my life and I say, am I really like those two cries? Like, God, there's no going back for me. Like, even if it's hard, even if the sacrifice is difficult, even when the questions I don't understand, like even when it comes to a place where I say, God, I just feel such a void. I want to be at a place where I say, that's okay, because you're enough. Like, you're enough. I'm not turning back. I can't turn back, because as Peter said, you alone are the word of life. So even when I don't get it, when I don't understand, and when misery seems to sweep over my life, and there seems to be no hope, I'm not turning back because I can't, because I've seen your glory. 
There's a psalm that talks about the fact, Psalm 63, David is basically saying, God, I have seen you in your sanctuary. I have beheld your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What David is saying is, even when life is hard, I have seen you in your glory. Your love is better than life. At the end of the day, this is where I think we're landing. Life is going to be full of all kinds of uncertainties and difficulties and struggles and fears and failures and all those kind of things and miseries. That's life. It is what it is. Do we believe that God is at work in and through it? Do we believe the God that we've given our life to, that we have met, that, that Jesus that has rescued us is worth following, even when answers aren't necessarily completely visible? Is God enough for you? Every single one of us will have the chance on pretty much a daily basis to say, God, I, I choose what's comfortable for me. I'm going back. Or to say, God, I'm not turning back now. Like, you alone are life and I'm all in. I follow you. Is God enough for you? In the middle of wherever you are, is he alone, alone your salvation, your rock, your light? Is the sacrifice that God calls us to make for him, is that joy enough? I'll tell you what, and I'll be honest, and we'll wrap with this, and I'll invite the band to come back up. I, uh, I was plagued with this question this week. Because tongue-in-cheek, I'm just like, yeah, of course, absolutely. Man, when you really start to let it sit on your heart, am I content with my life, or do I always want more? Materially, financially, relationally, whatever category you want to put in there. Am I content with my relationship with God? Is He alone enough for me? Is he alone my rock? Have you seen him in his sanctuary, beheld his power and glory, and know that his love is better than life? If so, I think you'll find yourself like Ruth, saying, I'm not going back. Life is different from here on out. And we're going to get to see God move in some pretty incredible ways. So that's the question. Is God enough for you? Living in contentment constantly wanting more. Let's pray.